Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. We're leaving the windows open. <laughs> no, I think it sounds, yeah, it sounds kind of... Summer. Exactly, it's like we're outside. But nothing very dramatic happens out there, we can... Include it. <laughs> I watched Twin Peaks because it's Tuesday night and then I looked at some dystopian economic charts from one of our former students. <laughs> That's a good name for a blog. <laughs> I'm joined by Helen Thompson, Chris Brooke. I stayed late in my office looking at examining spreadsheets and then I went... Dystopian <laughs> charts. And then I went to the pub and as I ate my food I looked at examining spreadsheets and then I went home and I looked at examining spreadsheets and then I went to bed and I woke up at half past four and I looked at yeah. examining spreadsheets so there's a theme to my day um, but after today it will all be over and by John Norton I recovered from being in Bletchley Park for the day where it was stiflingly hot and I read a lot of dystopian charts basically what we all do. standard night he's a friend of the podcast and observer of all things technological and we're going to talk to John in a little bit about what we've learned in the past few days about the election and social media and how Jeremy Corbyn managed to bypass the Daily Mail because it looks like some of the things that we've been talking about on this podcast about how politics has changed it's happening even faster than we thought but when I write the blurb for this every week I find myself most weeks writing after another tumultuous week, we take a step back and reflect. And then every week seems more tumultuous than the last. There was genuine tumult right, at the weekend, particularly. So we're about a week on from the terrible fire in Grenfell Tower. And Friday, Saturday, there was a kind of air of hysteria around our politics. The Times had a thundering editorial on Saturday in its old-fashioned style claiming that there was a sort of stench of decay coming from the nation and the government had to get a grip or we were all going to the dogs. And newspapers critical of Theresa May just assumed she was done. As Polly Toynbee, who I seem to quote a lot on this podcast, wrote, she didn't dare meet her own people, she's finished. Now, this is the morning of the Queen's speech. We have to assume, though, again, no deal has been struck with the DUP, that the government will get the Queen's speech through Parliament. It's a very pared-down Queen's speech, partly because there's not a lot they can put in it and partly because the Queen has to go to Ascot. But it will pass and Theresa May will remain as Prime Minister and she's not finished. And I just feel completely all at sea. It really did feel at the weekend as though something was moving and, and things looked pretty fragile and particularly for the Conservative Party. I think it is true that there was a kind of air of panic around some of their public statements and, and even how they sounded in the aftermath of the fire. So has that just gone away or drifted away? Or is, the, is all of that still there under the surface? And we're just in this kind of phony war phase where no one really knows what Theresa May's authority is at the moment. She, I mean, just to add one more thing into the mix, she's reported to have given a speech yesterday to a group of Tory donors at lunchtime in which she said, yeah, the election didn't turn out as well as we hoped, but we saved the union and we could have, should have won a landslide. So let's just keep going, guys. I think that the the issue is, is that there's a whole set of different and conflicting forces going on. And I think there were two different things going on on the weekend. One was what on earth was happening to the Conservative Party. And second, a sense of, I think, near palpable you know, fear 
that you know things might turn violent over the weekend um, because there's an awful lot of very understandably angry people and there's also a, a section of the left you know around the, the socialist workers in particular but not only that that want to take to the politics of the street now in this political moment that isn't actually what happened over the weekend and the conservative party also sort of held itself together and although there has not been possible for the conservative party to make an agreement with the dup there is now no possibility i think that the government is going to fall in the next um, few weeks so of course we make these silly predictions and on this podcast and then everything you know goes the opposite way of what we say but i'll sort of put some moderate faith in what i'm saying there so i think there is a way of looking at it and say saying things were incredibly politically tense over the weekend that moment has past in its immediacy but I, I don't think we should be under any illusions that the f- political forces and the conflicts underneath that that produce that have not gone away they can't go away the times bizarrely to me said the analogy was Suez, which seems very strange as people do they're reaching for a moment when they felt like a, a tory government had lost its grip but this is nothing like that i mean obviously Suez was a very charged moment in the politics of the nation but the combination of a election that produces a very uncertain result, a terrible tragedy with the Grenfell Tower fire, the steady security issues around terrorism, and in a sense, the the uncertainty that that creates. I don't know what the analogy is, and maybe there isn't one, but it's not, it's not Anthony Eden invading Egypt. No, and I think that what is interesting as well is if you go back to 1974, which is a comparison that we made before, actually this whole process of forming a government under conditions of a hung parliament actually went on for much longer because, first of all, the then Conservative Prime Minister, Ted Heath, tried to form a government with Jeremy Thorpe and it failed, you know, he failed to do so. We only moved to a Labour government after that possibility had taken place. It took place against the backdrop of the oil price hike, which was having profound consequences of the miners' strike, the state of emergency. So even in people's lifetime who are writing these editorials for The Times, they've actually got a point of comparison that actually looks much more chaotic. Now, there isn't the analogy of the fire to go with 1974 and in that sense you can say that the political context is different and the way in which people are reacting to it is different because we are in the age of social media and and they certainly weren't. I thought it was a sign of kind of institutional dementia on the part of the Times because people who have dementia they have often very good recall of early stuff and more or less total amnesia but that's that's why 1974 seems to me to be a much better analogy at the moment and also in 1974 you had the question of a government essentially going to the people and saying who governs and in a sense that was the underlying message behind Theresa May's attempt. The analogy I'm interested in at the moment is 1924 that's a story when after a long period of coalition with liberal ministers the Tories won an election and started to govern on their own the year after the election the Victoria's Prime Minister was forced out. His successor decided to reverse policy fundamentally on matters of international trade and called a snap election in order to win a mandate for the policy and for the new leadership. The snap election produced a hung parliament, and when the parliament met, it wasn't at all clear that the government had the votes to carry, in those days, the King's speech. And Mr Baldwin lost the vote, and that paved the way for the formation of the first Labour government in 1924. That's the analogy that's preying on my mind at the moment. But to come back to the Times, 
two things strike me. One is that, I mean, the real analogy for Suez is the fiasco over the Iraq war, which the Times backed all the way. So the Times has reason to try to displace attention from Suez analogies away from fiascos it supported to other episodes. I also wonder whether it's worth thinking about the Times as a conspiracy to back Mr. Gove. The, Mr. Gove used to be a Times journalist, then he went became a Conservative MP and a minister. Then when he left government, he went back to the Times to work as a columnist. There's a lot of people at News International who would very much like to see Mr. Gove in number 10. And it's not likely that the current chain of events will lead to a Gove ascendancy. But it's not beyond the bounds of possibility. And to make that happen, you need to keep stirring the pot and you need to keep the Tories in turmoil. And the Times can do that to a certain extent well, that, that with is a leader column. the view of the conspiracy theorist-in-chief. I think that's an official title in the Labour Party, Tom Watson, who, after all, has wanted to be told whether Rupert Murdoch has had any influence in the creation of this new government or not. So it's a view that's out there on the Labour side too. I think that the striking thing, though, about the newspapers is that Theresa May simply has nobody, a columnist, an editor, who is on her side. And that is a function, in some sense, of what had prior to the last month been her political strength, and that she did not spend her time toadying up to media columnists over over dinner and the kinds of ways in which the three previous prime ministers certainly acted towards the media. She, she just simply did not cultivate relations with them as individuals in any, anything like the way in which Blair, Brown and David Cameron all um, certainly did. And now in this moment of crisis, she's been left with nobody who's writing sympathetic columns for her. And that was the striking thing at the weekend, which is it was one of those rare moments where The Guardian and The Daily Mail were saying the same thing. And to go back to Helen's point, this is the age of social media. We'll talk a bit more in a second about what that might mean for Jeremy Corbyn's future. But there are various clashes in our politics. There's, as Helen says, the sort of anger on one side and the sort of establishment saying we need to get a grip on the other. There's parliamentary politics versus maybe a more kind of popular or raw politics on the street. But there's also the politics of responsible government, I guess you could call it, and the politics of empathy. And it was the empathy that she was felt to lack. And it was almost uniform, the condemnation of a prime minister who didn't have the guts or the people skills or just the basic decency to actually put herself on the street with the people who were the victims of this fire. And for about 24 hours, there was unanimous opinion that therefore she couldn't be prime minister. I don't think that can have gone away. It's, it's receded as the other kinds of politics. How are you going to get the Queen's speech through Parliament? The arithmetic of parliamentary government has come to the fore again. But that really strong body of opinion, which was there at the weekend, it's, it's going to find an outlet somewhere. It is, but I think, like most things in politics, you know, an action, in this case the phenomenon of people judging Theresa May extraordinarily fiercely for the way in which she performed in the first days after the fire, also produces a counter-reaction and that is the group of people who, who think that Theresa May has been treated extremely unfairly by the media for the way in which she's responded in the aftermath of the fire. And I think the most striking thing, in a sense, if we're just talking in electoral terms about reaction, is, is that salvation poll that came out earlier in the week that showed the Conservative support actually practically untouched. And that actually, for the kinds of people who don't particularly like Theresa May within the Conservative point, at a certain point, the critique that was made upon her became something that actually gave her some something to hold on to. Because not everybody judges prime ministers by their empathy skills. I'm not saying that that's an 
inappropriate criteria entirely for judging prime ministers, but it cannot be the only criteria criterion, I should say, for judging prime ministers. And I think that some people are now on the other side of that. But it seems to be about not chiefly about empathy, so much as what we saw was the continuation and intensification of what she'd been criticised by during the election campaign, that the complaint about the election campaign was that she hid herself away, she avoided media appearances, she avoided meetings with the public. When she did appear, it was in very heavily stage-managed occasions. And given that the election went so badly for her, and there had in the previous week been a lot of picking over the failures of the Conservative campaign, and this had been a prominent theme, and her refusal to meet the affected residents, I don't think it was so much that people wanted her to emote and to empathise, as that sense that she's been running away from face-to-face meetings with people who might have something to say to her that she doesn't necessarily want to hear. And that, I think, was why what happened on Friday resonated a lot more than it otherwise might have done. I don't want to get further into the business of trying to politicise a terrible disaster and something that has understandably not just provoked anger, but also widespread distress. The only other thing I would say is that the, the Grenfell Tower fire, as well as seemingly exposing some of Theresa May's personal weaknesses as a politician. It clearly, for many people, symbolised a wider political failure, and that's framed in different ways. For some people, it's just austerity. For other people, it's a kind of disdain or contempt for the way certain less well-off members of British society live or are expected to live. For some, it's just a question of the incompetence, a kind of public squalor aspect of a privately affluent regime and society. And again, that's going to find an outlet somewhere. I mean, part of the panic for the Conservative Party was not simply that they seem to have a Prime Minister who may no longer be able to command political authority. But, and I hate putting it like this, the brand was in real trouble. And presumably, at some level, it still is. I had a feeling that in Theresa May's shoes, I would have been as nervous as she was, apparently, about meeting members of the public. And the reason, the most difficult position you can be in as a politician is to to be in a situation like the immediate aftermath of a terrible disaster when you have nothing useful you can say. And part of the problem about the, the Grenfell fire was that it highlighted something that's seriously wrong in British society, which is the housing crisis. And in those circumstances, if she were confronted by angry residents, she has no answer to the actual problem, which is that in one of the richest boroughs in the country, you have this colossal levels of inequality in housing and and other areas. She was possibly astute to do what she did, even though it had terrible public relations implications. But short-term astuteness usually then comes back to get you in the long run. And having nothing to say in those circumstances, at some point, her government will have to have something to say about this. And and asking for a public inquiry, which is the classic way of, as it were, pushing this down the road, isn't going to be enough. Well, I don't know. I mean, the only analogy I could think of for the FAR was the Hillsborough disaster in in April 1989, when 96 people died and 766 people were injured. And it provoked a very rapid response in the form of a public inquiry led by Lord Justice Taylor, which issued its interim report in August of that year. So that's four months after the thing itself and its final report the year after. And it did lead to substantial change. So it is possible to do stuff on that time 
frame. Though Hillsborough also worked its way through British politics for the next... Yes, for the next 23 years. But I was thinking about another one to make a comparison with, which is the Aberfan disaster of 1966, which I think I got these figures right. I think 116 children were killed and about 28 adults Mm. when a slag heap came down the hill and engulfed the school. Uh, There was a public inquiry into that. But when you look at the details of what happened then, what is striking is is how little political damage that it caused the then Wilson government, despite the fact that by the end of it, after the public inquiry had found that the National Coal Board was entirely responsible for Mm. what had happened, that the the, the then government, the, the Wilson government, forced the memorial fund that had been set up to pay for some of the removal of the remaining slag heaps in the village. Now... I'm not trying to make a, a direct comparison with what's happened with um, Grenfell Fire in terms of the reaction, but what I'm saying is, is, is that's a pretty appalling story in terms of the aftermath of what it was. And indeed, it was I think it was the Labour government when Tony Blair came back in power that gave that money back to the Aberfan um, Memorial Fund. But I just think that political world in which that could play out in the way in which it did and the one that we're now in is just really very, very different from each other. And it's quite hard to see, although I entirely agree with John, I'm not sure what you can say in the face of what is a profound housing crisis and what is also the consequence of the internationalisation of London as a city, the internationalisation of the capital that's come into London, which has part of the story as to why there is such massive housing inequality in London. Lots of Londoners like the benefit of internationalisation of London including capital coming in but they don't want to face the consequences of what that is which is the the shocking inequality in a place like Kensington. What what then do you think is currently the basis of Theresa May's authority to govern? Is it simply going to have to fall back on her ability to get legislation through parliament? I mean I, I have to say I also thought at the weekend it was hard to see how she could continue for long and yet now here we are and I suspect it will be possible for her to continue for a while. And if nothing else, she, people move so quickly from thinking that she's a politician of strengths or a politician with nothing but weaknesses, but her strengths haven't gone away. And I would say her dominant political strength is a kind of resilience or doggedness. And I think that is currently on display. Also a certain kind of loyalty to the party. For want of a better word, you might even call it a sense of duty. Among the many things that she said, you don't have to believe all of them, but when she said, I got you into this mess and I'm going to get you out of it, and I've been stuffing envelopes for the party since I was 11, I suspect some of that comes from the heart. And and that is also exactly the pitch that Stanley Baldwin used to make in the 1920s. Yeah, maybe it came from the heart. Saying, too. well, his slogan was safety first, Mrs. May's was strong and stable, but Mr. Baldwin's pitch was explicitly to say that he wasn't asking his followers to do anything that he hadn't done himself in terms of delivering leaflets and Ram- pounding the, on I doorstep. Think the, I, mean, I agree quite a lot with the 24 analogy, but the point when it breaks down is, is Ramsay MacDonald and Jeremy Corbyn are clearly not the same person. Also, if, if the 24 analogy holds, Theresa May will still be Prime Minister in more than a decade's time. No, they aren't, but the... Or she will return as Prime Minister. But what I, I mean say. is, it's one thing for Stanley Baldwin, effectively, to say, oh, we'll let Labour govern for a while, and they'll show a few things and then we'll go back to having Conservative government again. It's quite another for Theresa May to think, or the Conservative Party more generally, to think, oh, we'll just let Jeremy Corbyn have a have a go at governing and see how it works out. So in a sense, that's my question, which is, is the basis of her authority now actually fear of the other side? I mean, is that the thing that is holding not just the Conservative Party together, but any potential Conservative DUP arrangement together and so on, that she has the advantage of the fact that Jeremy Corbyn got close enough to becoming Prime Minister that it has focused minds. I, I would have said two things. One of them is, is the absence of an obvious alternative within the Tory party. That's one. 
Yeah, I mean, and to apply your test, who could have gone down in the aftermath of the Grenfell Tower fire and stood on the street and said something useful? And the answer is, unless I've missed it, among the Tory party ranks, nobody. Nobody. Nobody at the senior level, no. And the second thing is that, um, and it goes back to your first observation, which is this feeling of, of fragility at the weekend. And the truth is that it goes back in a way to how Macmillan's famous observation about events, dear boy, events, because, you know, there's one thing after another and there's a feeling that the state is beginning to be stretched, for example, in relation to security. And then you have a guy from Cardiff apparently renting a van and then this comes from nowhere and it's going to continue like that, I suspect. And so there's a sense in which at the moment things are really fragile and if we don't have some kind of functioning government, then it would be a lot worse very quickly. There is the resurgent Labour Party that will concentrate minds on the Tory benches and pull people into line behind the government in the absence of an obvious alternative. But there's also the complexities of the Brexit process that the last three Prime Ministers have had their careers broken by European Union politics. It looks as if Mrs May has had her career broken by European Union politics in the sense that even though she's still Prime Minister, very few people think she will fully recover from what's happened to her recently. And my hunch is that there's quite a wide body of opinion in the Conservative Party that would like to see her pilot the United Kingdom through the Brexit process, because other potential leaders don't much want to deal with that. It may turn out to be impossible. I mean, remember that Mrs May's pitch for a a larger parliamentary majority was built on the claim that you couldn't really deliver Brexit without a much larger parliamentary majority than she had. And I suspect, in in the absence of an obvious Tory turn to a new Brexit policy, I suspect there are quite a few people who want to see Mrs May try to deliver her policy and will look to replace her once most of the most complicated parts of the process have been completed, if they can be completed. This is Talking Politics. My name is David Runciman. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Helen, can I just ask you about one other disconnect that makes it so hard to know what state we're in, which is between the markets and the political turmoil, in that throughout the last period of British politics, the markets have been, as they have all around the world, and I'm talking primarily about stock markets, I mean, I know currency is slightly different, but have been stable. I read yesterday that volatility indices are the lowest that they've been since the financial crisis. Now, there might be all sorts of international reasons for that, but in the British context, the surprise is that the markets have not taken fright and didn't even take fright at the weekend, when at least it was possible that we were 48 hours away from the collapse of the government, and therefore the only alternative government is one led by Jeremy Corbyn, whose Chancellor of the Exchequer would quite like to take away the independence of the Bank of England, among other things. And there's not a ripple. Now, is it because the people who, in the end, determine market levels don't believe it? 
I mean, they've got a lot of things wrong recently, so we shouldn't trust their judgment. Is it that actually international factors just completely outweigh what goes on in domestic British politics? Because in other countries, things are stabilising in France and elsewhere, potentially. I mean, that's the part of the story, these 1974 stories or whenever it is. I've been rereading A Very British Coup, a very useful book to read at this moment. I might talk about that in future episodes. But that's the bit that's missing. Where's, where's the market panic? I think the answer to this is, is that financial markets, and in particular bond markets and share markets, don't work in anything like the way in which they did before 2008, before we turned to the world of quantitative easing and zero interest rates. In the old world, if we can call it that, then political risk was an important part, not only of what's, what sent currencies up and down, but what sent bond markets up and down, i.e. the rate in which interest rates would turn out. But since 2009, since the quantitative easing and zero interest rate policies began, what markets financial markets respond to above all else is what central banks do and what central banks say and what central banks don't say and what central banks don't do. And there is a massive bubble, particularly in bond markets at the moment, which is the reason why you have a situation where a country like Italy has so much debt and yet it has to pay so little interest on, on that debt. Now, if financial markets were to face up to the scale of financial risk, let alone the scale of political risk in the world at the moment, they simply couldn't function, they would collapse. So there is either denial and just carrying on as as they are, responding to what central banks, as I say, do and don't do, or basically precipitating a crash. Now, as I say, in that context, then whether Jeremy Corbyn takes power or not, whatever else the consequences of Jeremy Corbyn might take power, it just doesn't register enough. Because as I say, there is no possibility of facing the amount of risk that there is. So the best way of dealing with that is actually denial, until we get to the point when it can't be denied any longer and then the financial markets crash. And and presumably, therefore, on that account, the point where it can't be denied any longer, a Labour government with Corbyn and McDonnell is not that. Because I've seen from, and this is your world, not mine, I would have thought that that would be one of the moments, at some point, governments will be elected, not just in places like Greece, but in places like Britain or the United States or other parts of you know, major powers in the world, where the politics will directly confront this regime, this fiscal regime, this financial think, regime. Is a McDonald chancellorship not that thing? I don't think it probably is. And I think because that assumes that the politicians are still the ones who matter. And I think in terms of economic policy, certainly in terms of macroeconomic policy, they simply haven't been since 2008, 2009. It's what central banks do. But they haven't been. But And then you get the politics that we have now, politics not just of anger, but of a kind of a desire for change, which is almost, I mean, this is going to sound like a small C conservative thing to say, almost reckless. And I would just think that that might register. The thing that's changed is, is like if you go back to the pre-2008 world and you have the way in which the, the Bank of England was made independent, you have a government you set an inflation target and then you have the Bank of England that was setting interest rates in order to try and realise that inflation target. And then what we've had since is essentially that def- inflation target to all intents and purposes being discarded and simply the Bank of England making as much monetary accommodation as it can to try to get first get a recovery and then sustain some kind of recovery. So in that sense, what John McDonnell could, could do to the situation that would be radically change that is much, much more limited than what it would be if we'd had a John McDonnell um, chancellorship before 2008. Finally, and this relates to what we've been talking about, because we've been talking about the papers 
the Times, the you know, or at the weekend, the Guardian and the Daily Mail were saying the same thing, and I just instinctively feel, oh, it's that's that must be important. But John, you you sent me last night um, a piece that appeared in BuzzFeed, and we'll we'll tweet the link, which looks at the election through the prism of what is now quite a familiar question, which is the newspapers were saying one thing, and then there was an entirely different world of information and information sharing and news sharing, though news is not a category that really fits this, on social media. And there were in particular groups of people, nodes in these networks, circulating information, positive information about Jeremy Corbyn, very negative information about the Conservatives, which was potentially reaching more people than I mean, we know The Guardian isn't necessarily read by huge numbers of people in this country, but then the the Daily Mail. And so we had that old-fashioned point, seems very old-fashioned now, in the campaign, where the Mail, the Sun, put everything out there about Corbyn that they have in order to finally kind of seal the deal, and it just doesn't work. And one possible explanation for that is that lots and lots of people no longer are exposed to that, and they are getting their news from sources which share a worldview which is a million miles away from the worldview of the Daily Mail and so you can just avoid it. And and potentially that was a big part of what determined the outcome of the election. For me, that was the most puzzling part of it because on the day of the election, I went to a newsagent and I looked at the whole display and I took a photograph of it and what it looked like was the story as before. In other words, you had four tabloids which act as the attack dogs for the reactionary end of the Tory party, engaged in monstering the Labour Party and in monstering Corbyn. And I remember thinking, well, okay, this is the story as before. But uh, like, for instance, 1992, yeah, the like, famous like, Sun headline, would the last person in Britain if yeah. Kinnock wins, turn off the light? The tabloids have done to Corbyn what they did to Kinnock many years ago, perhaps even more extreme. So I assumed on that morning that it was going to run to the same pattern and it didn't. Now it looked, in fact, it looked at the end as though all that venom directed at Corbyn and MacDonald and Diane Abbott and and Diane Abbott as well, it seemed not had the desired effect as something else had happened. My first thought was, well, we know that there was a significant surge of younger voters towards Labour and that that would be a good explanation for it because we know also that younger people don't read newspapers anymore. But it is true, we think, from the analysis of the election that that younger people did swing, but only if you count younger people as up to the age of 44. So it wasn't just teenagers and, and early voters not reading the newspapers, it was something else. The BuzzFeed article is interesting because it suggests that pro-labour activists made the most productive use of the net in the sense that they were the ones who managed to get to produce viral material that really did go viral and most of it was pro-Corbyn and anti-Tory. The other thing that they discovered was that some things that didn't figure at all in the kind of discourse that we have around this table seemed to be quite important in this online discourse. For example, the stuff about fox hunting that turned out to be a big deal in the viral pro-labour hyper-partisan online sphere. And another one was about elephant tusks, ivory. And one of the pictures that went viral was a photograph of a mother elephant who had been shot, tusks removed, and her child is nuzzling her as she lies dead. And that goes wild. And the implication there was that Theresa May's attitude to the ivory trade 
was... Not only that, but there was also a photograph of Theresa May uh, shaking hands with the, one of the proponents of the easing of regulations or the arbitrary. The next bit of the explanation then is that it wasn't just that the newspapers are not read by people who, who voted for Corbyn, but also that they were disproportionately affected by this very skilled hyperpartisan campaign. And of course, the last bit of it is that there's a sort of a, a symbiotic relationship between this hyperpartisanship online and the extremism of the tabloids. Because the thing we know about, about user engagement on the net is that the more dramatic it is, the more widely it is shared. And so, among other things, what the pro-Corbyn online sphere was doing was picking up some of the more ludicrous things that you find in the mail or you find in the sun, packaging it nicely and tweeting it or Facebooking it um, in a way that makes it instantly shareable because it's quite dramatic. And bingo, you've got a result. And it may be that what what's happened here is we're always sort of overanalyzing the thing that's happened before our catchphrases. Corbyn, Brexit, Trump. Brexit and Trump, a lot of stories circulated around those two events, which was that people who were skilled in manipulating this new form of communication, particularly in the case of Trump in certain parts of the United States, targeted using Facebook and other media to target messages at not individual voters, but small groups of voters. And because, broadly speaking, those sides won, insofar as Trump won and Brexit won, that somehow, quote unquote, the right were more sophisticated at this than the left. No reason to think that. I mean, there's no underlying cause for that at all. And it was clearly just a coincidence of the events themselves. In this case, some people thought, ah, the Tories will have hired some of the same people who helped Trump and Brexit, and they will target on Facebook anti-Corbyn messages, and this will shore up their vote. That clearly didn't work. What worked was the skilled use of certain kinds of sharing networks to push the message that people wanted to hear. The people who wanted to hear that message got the message that they wanted to hear. And they retweeted it or they passed it on or they shared it. Yeah. And, and also it didn't deliver a victory for Corbyn. What it did was it helped not just shore up, but expand the Labour vote to what may be close to the limits of where the Labour vote was going to go. But I think you could say the same measure, though, that it doesn't mean that it didn't work for the Conservatives because the Conservatives still got themselves to nearly 43%. Yeah, the people who weren't doing this skillfully were the Liberal Democrats. <laughs> and would that have happened without the, the micro-Facebook targeting that the Conservatives engaged in? I don't know. In a way, since this podcast is about confessing how we were wrong, let me confess... But, yeah, maybe that's our new catchphrase. That catchphrase. I was wrong about this because before the election, I was convinced that what we might call just for shorthand, the Cambridge Analytica approach to micro-targeting, funded by large amounts of money, which, which do not figure in, in the Electoral Commission's uh, reports, that that was what the Tories were up to, and that it would have the desired impact, I and thought. That, and so that was the carry-on of the yeah, Brexit the and Trump that's right, version, that's, versions yeah. of this. Now, we don't know yet of the extent of that, although there have been some empirical attempts to find out how much that uh, that happened. But the interim conclusion has to be that even if it did happen significantly, it didn't have the desired effect. I mean, it produced a result for the Tories, but it wasn't anything like the result they needed. There is evidence too, as you said, that something like the fox hunting part of this, which is the manifesto commitment to overturn the fox hunting ban, which I think at the time people thought was a slight hostage to fortune, didn't get a huge amount of coverage. 
but subsequent polling and, and we can I think rely on YouGov or YouGov are clearly better at this than other people YouGov polling after the election was that that was a very very important issue for large numbers of people and you wouldn't have got that from reading the newspapers you would not have got that from watching the BBC you would not have got that from the mainstream media and yet all the evidence from this BuzzFeed article is that that was one of the most shared features of the campaign yes. because it absolutely sends the signal that people want to send, which is basically the underlying message of all of this, which is Tories bad, Corbyn good. And also it sends a message which says Tories really care about a small constituency. Yeah, Tories bad, heartless and yeah. posh. It isn't just about animal rights. I mean, that, that helps as well. But it's also about the fact that this is an issue which matters to a very small proportion. Repeating the fox hunting ban is something that matters to a very small number of people who live in the country broadly speaking, they care passionately about it and so on. But it's not a mainstream issue for the country as a whole. But not only that, a lot of people really, really feel strongly the other side. And that was the group of people who could be communicated with directly. And they got that message. I kind of partly buy this fox hunting um, issue, but I'm I'm also somewhat sceptical, at least in acting as a direct motivational explanation of of what people are doing. I think that one of the problems that the the Conservatives got into in this election campaign was at the beginning of the campaign, they were suddenly looking at the possibility of getting on towards 50% of the electorate, or at least that part of the electorate that was turning out voting um, Conservative. That was a lot of people who would never have voted Conservative in, in any election in their lives before who were considering the possibility in May, let's say, of doing that. But actually for people who've lived their lives with a tribal sense of, or not even necessarily just tribal, but a sense of being Labour or being anti-Tory is part of who they are, actually crossing that line and voting Conservative is a whole other different psychological proposition. So then we move into a situation where you've got lots of issues and fox hunting might be a good example that provide a way of, oh, I can't possibly vote for that party after all because they're in favour of fox hunting. At the same time, you have the two manifestos that one of which made the Labour manifesto, made direct appeals to a really wide coalition's material interest, whether it be tuition fees or whether it be being against, I should say, using housing assets to finance social care. On the other hand, you had a Conservative Party that actually said, look, we're going to effectively demand sacrifice from the older generation, not just the baby boomers, but Generation X's inheritance in order to deal with the the social care crisis. I think that's a fairly material explanation as well as as, as what's gone on. We haven't had a situation before in which one party's material offer, if you want to quite like that word, offer in the electoral context, has been so vastly different to what the other one was. What is astonishing is, is that there was ever a possibility, in retrospect, that the one that was basically saying, actually, we're offering you nothing materially, was going to win over the one that was saying, you can have all these free things. What makes it so hard to know what's really going on is that we do clearly have evidence now that the big divide in this election was on age and as you said John basically 45 is roughly the cut-off point so not just 18 to 24 not just 24 to 35 but people under 45 strongly favoured the Labour Party and then as you go up the age scale the numbers who favour the Conservative Party increasingly go up though again there is quite strong evidence now that Theresa May's personal ratings have collapsed with the older generation but we now that's for another time. And lots of things distinguish people under 45 from people over 45. Material interests are one, pensions versus tuition fees and everything in between who's going to pay for the care of the elderly as they get old. And another is 
their experience of the digital revolution and the world that it created and their ease with and sort of sense of familiarity with new ways of sharing information. Presumably these two things have somehow combined and we can't explain it all through one or the other. But it may be that together it reinforces the age divide. So you don't just have material interests that cut across over 45, under 45. You also have information environments that separate out over 45 from under 45. And it's the combination that is making politics, not just in this country, but all around the democratic world, more divided. It is that, but there's also memory as well. I think that this is a you know a fundamental divide as well, is, is the people who are under 45 do not have the memories of, of certain things, not least to do with the politics. But that was always true. But I think that when you are inserting a politician like Jeremy Corbyn into the picture, who was a, a continuous part of the past in politics of those who are over a certain age, and is seen entirely differently because he's become from being a sort of cranky backbencher to being a charismatic hero of the left for a younger generation. That is a profound difference. I can't think of a another leader that we've had of a political party where their past in relationship to their present is as, there's such a disjuncture as there is with Jeremy Corbyn. And the other thing, just on the memory front, I mean, going back to the observation you made about the Times comparison with Suez, well, <laughs> almost nobody you meet in the street knows what you would mean if you said, you remember Suez? It means nothing to, to a large chunk of the electorate. And I was really struck reading that because whoever wrote it, I assume the people who write Times editorials are about 22. But even if the person who wrote it was 72, the memory of Suez would be pretty slight. And it's just that extraordinary thing about institutional memory that somehow, I don't know how almost how it happens, but somehow at certain moments in the life of the nation, certain institutions like the Times just feel it's their duty to perform in certain ways. And one of the ways in which the Times performs is it starts to say someone has to get a grip or it's Suez all over again. And we just, now what do we do? We just smile wryly. I think you're right that there's no unicausal explanation for this. This is a systemic phenomenon. um, And information technology and, and social media and so on obviously play a role in it. How big a role, we don't really know for sure yet. Last week, the new Oxford professor of internet studies, Phil Howard, gave his inaugural lecture and his question was, is social media destroying democracy? And his answer was, in the end, broadly speaking, it's impossible to, to know for sure, but, but it seems to be weakening it. So that's one way of looking at it. And that's probably the wisest conclusion. On the other hand, if you're, if you're a Labour supporter, you, you, you look at what happened on the net in this election against the, the tabloids and you'll say actually uh, you know, social media really strengthened democracy in Britain just now and that's not true either It's hot we're confused but we're still going to try and keep thinking about this uh, when you hear this we'll have a new government I guess because the Queen's speech will have passed and on the caravan we'll go and we'll be back next week to talk about it again and by next week I believe it will be less hot so maybe it'll all make a bit more sense Join us then. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. I think one of the difficulties I would say that uh, even good podcasts like this have is that they are still locked into a model of how the world works. Um, and it's it's puzzling and it's interesting and so on and so forth. But but if you had a wide, if you had if you went up a level and you said, what, what's happening? And I think it is happening, that, that our world has become 
orders of magnitude more complex than it was not so long ago. Mm. Um, and if you are serious about complexity, then you're into a really frightening um, era because complex systems have properties. And one of the properties is they're intrinsically unpredictable. And secondly, they can change phase very abruptly. A real phase change. I mean, it's like going from ice to, f to, to freezing, uh, from ice to vapor, that kind of stuff. And it's conceivable in some way that some of that's going on and we haven't got a handle on it at all. Why I want to read a couple of books about systems theory over the summer is, is because I think that if I could understand the conceptual vocabulary of it, then I could put this argument, you know, we're not in Kansas anymore, could at a, at a higher level because what looked like random events could actually be explained. And maybe we should properly talk about this at some point, which is that we're talking about this thing called politics. Yeah. And politics is this surface phenomenon. And we're responding to moves on the waves of the surface. So whatever that, you know what I mean. Um, and we're just talking about you know, week on week inc yeah. incidental features of a system that we don't even begin to understand. That's what I think is probably true. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's that's sort of behind my question. I'm just lost. I actually yeah. feel. I genuinely feel. I, I I emailed you on the night of the election, you did, yeah, I know. and I said that we've been doing this you know, this crazy world of politics and thinking about it for two years. But now I just feel lost. Well, I've tried to. Think and what alarms me is that I think you know about it. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs> 